So Matthew chapter 17 is where we're at. And we pick up uh, the reading in verse 1. Matthew writes, Now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and do not be afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. And his disciples asked him, saying, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus answered and said to them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already. And, that, and they did not know him, but did, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is also about to suffer at their hands. Then, G, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. So if you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. Uh, if you're watching online, welcome. We're so thankful that you've uh, decided to worship the Lord with us this morning. Um, as a church, we've been studying through the life and ministry of Jesus Christ as it's recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. And we believe that the Lord is able to speak directly into our lives. Those things he wants to instruct us on as we study his word. And as we study the word of God, he's able to open our eyes to see Jesus. He's able to open our ears to hear from him. And it's my prayer that we would come always with open hearts, that we would be able to receive and apply whatever it is that he would desire to reveal to us. Now, last time we were together, two weeks ago, we finished Matthew 16. And I felt like the Lord had us finish that chapter on a couple of really encouraging and challenging insights. And if you missed that study for any reason, I'd strongly encourage you to go to our website and watch that study. You know, when Jesus tells his disciples, if they want to follow him, there are three things that they have to do, three things that are going to be required of them. They have to deny themselves. They have to pick up their cross and they have to follow him. Well, in that study, we finished with Matthew 16, verses 27 and 28. Let's read those verses again as we start this week's study. 
Verse 27, Jesus says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. And so Jesus is talking about his second coming here in this verse when he uh, returns in judgment. In verse 28, Surely I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming uh, in his kingdom. And there are people out there that they look at this verse and they come to the conclusion that Jesus' words are not trustworthy. You know, the Bible's full of contradictions. I don't know if you've ever heard that. You know, people say, you can't rely on, the, on anything that Jesus said because, you know, uh, it wasn't, this wasn't fulfilled. This right here wasn't fulfilled. Jesus said that his kingdom would be set up before the disciples died, you know, uh, and it didn't happen. Therefore, you can't trust the Bible. You know, you can't trust the words of Jesus or any of his teaching because he's unreliable. And I think that's really a sad conclusion to come to. You know, we need to remember that the chapters and the numbering of the verses, you know, wasn't in the original text. You know, Matthew didn't say verse one and then write a little bit. It's not the way it was. Those were added much later. And it's unfortunate that this chapter break actually happens right here. Um, you know, the scriptures are inspired. They are inerrant. They are without error. But the numbering of the verses and the chapter breaks, they're not inspired. You know, the titles that you have above little sections of scripture uh, they're not given by inspiration either. They're put there by the publisher to help you to understand what it is that you're reading. And you should also know that the commentary at the bottom of your page, that also is not inspired, right? Matthew 16, 28 should have been the first verse of Matthew 17. Okay, that would make more sense because obviously as you read, you see what Jesus is talking about was being fulfilled in Matthew 17, right? Peter, James, and John had a preview of, in a sense, of coming attractions. They received a foretaste of the kingdom to come, right, as they saw Jesus in his glory, well, how can you be sure that you're telling that what you're telling us is, is uh, true, Gare? Well, as you look at the other Gospels, that's the way you see it. Mark, in his Gospel, begins the whole account uh, in regards to the transfiguration with the verse that talks about seeing Jesus' uh, kingdom before they tasted death. Luke's Gospel also uh, begins this whole account of the transfiguration with the verse that talks about seeing Jesus's uh, kingdom coming, right? He, Luke uses that verse as he opens the story of the transfiguration. So it seems very clear that's the way it should have been in Matthew. You know, it just takes a little bit of time and a little bit of research to find out what the truth is. So with that, We'll start up here in Matthew 17, verse 1. Now, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became 
white as the light. And again, there are those people that read the Bible and they say, you know what? Hey, listen, you read here in Matthew, it says now after six days. But then when you read in, in Luke, it says now it came to pass about eight days after. You know, and again, they cry out really loud. You know, you can't trust the Bible. It's filled with contradictions, you know. Here's a clear contradiction. You're a fool. You're an idiot. You're a simpleton if you place your faith in the Bible. And that's what liberal scholars tell our kids as they go off to college, right? Personally, tell you the truth, I love it when somebody tells me the Bible's filled with contradictions. Because, you know what, I'll ask them very politely, um, would you be willing to show me one, please? You know, I've been reading the Bible for 40 plus years, and honestly, I've never run across a single contradiction. It would be very loving for you to correct me to point out a contradiction. And you know what? It, it never fails. You know what? Always after, you know, three, four, five minutes of backpedaling and hemming and hawing, it'll come out, well, I don't have a Bible to show you. Here, please, use mine. Every time, you know. <laughs> you know, so many people say that the Bible is filled with contradictions, but the reality is they're just parroting something that they heard somebody else say. No one has ever shown me a single real contradiction. But wait a minute, Gary. Didn't you say Luke said after eight days and Matthew said after six days? I mean, how do you answer that? Well, when Luke says about eight days after, you know what? That's the Jewish equivalent of what we might say, you know, about a week later. It's not a specific time frame, but in saying this, what Luke is doing is he includes the day that Jesus says it, the six days in between the time that he says it and the day that it happened. That's eight days. So it's only a contradiction if you're looking for a contradiction. And there are people out there who are not searching for the truth. You know what? They're not interested in finding the truth. They're just looking for a reason to disregard the truth. They're looking for something to argue over. Um, they're not looking for the truth. They're looking for a reason to excuse their lifestyle. You know what? They're looking for a reason to justify their sin in order that they won't have to be accountable to God. You know, but if you're looking for the truth, you know, there's a simple explanation for you in, uh, in order to reconcile, you know, seems it's things that seem like contradictions. So verse one, Matthew says, now after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Now, no doubt this mountain is Mount Hermon, okay? It's the highest mountain in Israel. It's at 9,300 feet. And Caesarea Philippi is at the base of Mount Hermon. And Caesarea Philippi is where the disciples and Jesus are at this time. You know, um, however, there are those people that think it might have been another mountain. Mount Miron, uh, which is between Caesarea Philippi and Capernaum. Others think that it's Mount Tabor down in the Jezreel Valley. You know, I don't think it really matters uh, which mountain it was. Luke's gospel tells us the reason Jesus went up on the mountain 
was he went up on the mountain to pray. And it was while they were praying that Jesus was transfigured. Now, it's something that we need to take note of here because it's something that's being continually repeated in the Gospels. It's repeated over and over again. And that is that Jesus takes time to get alone with the Father. Jesus places a high priority on spending meaningful time in prayer. Jesus is setting an example uh, and he's communicating to the three disciples that are with him and he's communicating to us too the importance of prayer. You know, it's an example that is, what an example actually, it is for us to prioritize prayer in our lives. If Jesus needed to pray, how much more do you and I need to uh, spend meaningful time in prayer? You know, uh, we talked about it when Jesus spent all night in prayer before he chose the 12 disciples. Before we make big decisions. If Jesus had to spend all night in prayer before he chose the 12, how much more do we need to spend time, meaningful time in prayer before we make decisions. You know, I see in the book of Acts, the early church continued steadfastly in four things. And you recall what they are, Acts 2.42. It says, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, which simply means teaching. They continued steadfastly in the teaching of the word. They continued steadfastly in fellowship. They ate together. They encouraged one another. And in the Lord, uh, they encouraged one another. And they just enjoyed each other's friendship. And they continued steadfastly in the breaking of bread. You know, in other words, they continued steadfastly in, in a partaking of communion, the Lord's Supper. And that's why we have communion here every Sunday morning, right? And they continued steadfastly in prayers. And then in verse 47, it says that the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. As the early church focused steadfastly on the word of God, on fellowship and on prayer, and regularly, regularly remembering the Lord's uh, sacrifice through the partaking of communion, as they continued in these things, the Lord added to the church you know what? I truly believe that the Lord wants to bless his church. I truly believe the Lord wants to bless our church here. If we will be what the Lord wants us to be as a church, if we will do what the Lord wants us to do as a church, then the Lord will do what he's wanting to do for us as his church. When we make the study of the scriptures a priority, if we make fellowship and prayer a priority in our lives, well, you know what? I can't come uh, next Sunday, you know, because football season has started. You know, the game's going to be on, you know. Well, I'm not going to be able to make it to church today because, you know what? It's wintertime and the snow's really good, you know. Hey, where are your priorities? I can't, I can't go today because, you know, this is my only day. This is the time the gang gets all together. 
Where are your priorities? You know, the early church continued steadfastly in prayer. And you know what? If this church will take on this mindset to continue steadfastly in the word of God, you know, in fellowship, in communion, and in prayer, the Lord will do for this church what the Lord is wanting to do for his church, for us. We have an opportunity to engage steadfastly in these things. Again, prayer every Saturday night. You know, life group on Wednesday where we eat together, fellowship together, and discuss Sunday's teaching and uh, seek to apply God's word to our lives practically. You know, we have ladies' studies. And we're going to have a men's prayer breakfast real, real soon. Tentatively scheduled right now for um, September 11th. We have Tuesday Revelation study uh, a few more weeks. And we have communion every Sunday. It's only out of love that I tell you that I want to encourage you, every one of you, to engage in a life group. Engage in a life group. Make one of these other events yours also. Listen, no pressure. If you can't come, you know you can't come. Sometimes that's just the way it is. But those of you that can come, each of these fellowships are opportunities, right? And there's such a special time of blessing as we gather together and we connect around God's word, you know, in Jesus's name. Such a rich time. Well, how important is it that we continue steadfastly in prayer? Jesus sets that example here for us, uh, here for his disciples, as well as not only for us individually, but us as a church, right? It's my heart, and I know it's the Lord's heart, that we would be a praying church. Man, I'd love to see our underground prayer meeting just packed out with people seeking the Lord's heart together as a body. With a loving heart, again, I'm telling you, if you're not coming out Saturday for prayer, you're missing out. You're really missing out. You're missing out on watching God build this church into what he wants it to be. God is doing great things and he wants to do even greater things in our midst. And if we'll just press into him, seek his face in prayer, he's gonna do great things. You know, those of us that are gathering together, worshiping and uniting in prayer, we're seeing God answer prayers. You know, I believe some of you guys are here because we prayed last night, honestly, you know? It's such an amazing thing, not to mention it's a faith-building thing, seeing God answer our prayers. Jesus uh, said, John 16, 24, ask. And the idea is please ask, right? Please ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Again, you're missing out if you're not part of praying and seeking the Lord's heart about what he wants to do in this church. Well, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, led them up on a high mountain by themselves. Have you ever stopped to think, what was Jesus' plan to reach the whole world? You know, obviously Jesus came with the intention of dying on the cross for the sins of the world, but what was his plan for reaching the whole world? Kind of blows your mind when you think about it, when you realize it. You know what? His plan to reach the whole world was to invest himself into 12 men. You know what? That was the plan. That was it. He totally invested himself 
into 12 men. He would disciple them. And then, of course, Jesus told us, Matthew 28, 18 through 19, he tells it to his followers. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul told his young protege, Timothy, 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, And these things that you've heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's discipleship, right? You know the cults today? The Mormons, the J-dubs, they're thriving because they've latched onto this principle, this idea of discipleship. They're taking people under their wings and they're investing themselves in them. You know, it's a principle that works. And it's an example that is set before us that we're to follow. You know, not only did Jesus spend time with the disciples, three years, loving them, pouring into them, you know? But he also, we also see that there was a tighter circle of three, Peter, James, and John. And Jesus poured himself into these three men. And he spent special time with them, teaching them, teaching them to pray, you know, developing them, preparing them for the things that were ahead. You know what? I've had the privilege of watching guys that I've discipled you know, step up and disciple others and then go out and do great things for the Lord. You know, what a joy it is uh, to see God, you know, move in the lives of people that you've mentored, that you've poured yourself into. You know, each of us, each of us have something to give back to a new generation of believers. You know, my prayer is that you'd get involved in a life group and then, Go deeper in a growth group where you take two or three guys or in the case of you ladies, you take two or three ladies and walk them through a discipleship um, curriculum, a discipleship course that we're developing right now. Tell you what, it's going to be such a blessing to our bodies if you'll catch that vision, right? And God will bless the church if we'll engage in it. There are so many of you in our church. There are so many people in our church. They've been walking with the Lord for a long time. You know what? They're mature. You're older in the Lord. You know, you've been walking with the Lord for so many years. You're seasoned. You've, God's brought you through so many different seasons and, and, and revealed himself to you in so many different ways. And yet you're still sitting. You know? Those that, that could be blessed by you are missing out. And you're missing out, you know, by giving out what you've taken in. It's such a simple, such a simple principle. You know, there must be an intake and there must be an outlet if there's going to be health, right? God's designed it that way. And it's just amazing to see how Jesus poured himself into these three guys, Peter, James, and John. On three different occasions, as you dig deeper, you find that Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him three specific times. 
The first, you might remember, was with Jairus' daughter, remember? Uh, you know, the story of Jairus, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He comes to Jesus and he begs him, please, my daughter's at the point of death. And Jairus falls down at the feet of Jesus and he uh, implores him, you know, saying, come and lay your hands on her. I know, I know she'll be... Uh, healed. I know uh, she'll, she'll live if you'll do that. And shortly after this uh, encounter, you remember another lady comes onto the scene. She's had an issue of blood for 12 years. And as that e encounter finishes up, right, with the healing of that lady, some of Jairus' servants come from the house and say, uh, hey, your daughter's dead. Why trouble the master any further? And I love this story because Jesus looks at Jairus and says, do not be afraid, only believe. And Jesus permitted no one to go with him except Peter, James, and John, and of course Jairus and his, and his wife. And when they came to the house, there were all these people, you know, weeping and wailing. And Jesus said, hey, what's the commotion all about? You know, the girl's not dead. She's just sleeping. And all that weeping and well and turned to mocking and laughter. And, uh, you know, you might recall when we studied these events, Jesus did something very wise. He put out the mockers. He put the mockers out of his life. And then he took Peter, James, and John, Jairus and his wife into the room. And again, I just love this story because Jesus did something that was so loving, so tender. He takes that little girl by the hand and he says, Talitha Kumi. Or little girl, arise. And immediately she's made well and she stood up. It's here that we see Jesus teaching Peter, James, and John that he has power over death, right? There's victory over death in the name of Jesus. And then the second time we see these guys with Jesus is right here in our story, right? Jesus has just finished teaching his disciples that he was going to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests. And then he would be killed. But hey, the third day he would rise again. And he began to teach them that they also must take up their cross to follow him. And after teaching them about the cross, he gives them a sneak peek of what's to come. Glory. Glorification. First comes the cross, then comes the crown. You know what? There's the crucifixion before there's glorification, right? And it's here that Jesus gives them insight into the life to come. You know what? There's glorification after crucifixion. Paul said that the suffering that we're currently in, enduring, this momentary light affliction that we're currently enduring is not worthy to be compared to the weight of glory for those that follow Jesus. And then, yeah, amen. And then the third time we see these three guys with Jesus, right? Interestingly enough, each of these three times, it all revolves around death, right? The third time we see uh, these three guys with Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? You remember the story. Jesus took the 12 down off the Temple Mount. They walk down the side of Mount Moriah. They step over the bloody 
brook Kidron, right? Because it's Passover at the time and the blood would have been running down the Temple Mount from the hundreds of thousands of Passover lambs that were slain. And that blood ran down into the brook Kidron. They're at the bottom of the Kidron Valley and they step over it. How symbolic is that? As a lamb of God steps over the bloody brook Kidron. Then he makes his way up the Mount of Olives on the other side to this beautiful garden called Gethsemane. Gethsemane means olive press. And there Jesus took his disciples and we read that he went a little further with Peter, James, and John. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. And he took the three a little uh, further. He spent extra time with them. Luke tells us that Jesus, at this point in time, he's in such agony that now he's sweating great drops of blood as he's praying. You know, there was such an intense battle going on in the spiritual realm over Jesus surrendering his life, submitting his life to the plan and the will of God, yielding his life to, the, uh, to a death on the cross for the sins of the world, becoming sin, right? He was made sin for us, the Bible says. And you know what? The worst trial of all for him was being separated. He became sin for us. He would be separated from the Father. First time ever in all of eternity. Unbearable. And it was at this time that Jesus fell on his face and prayed that prayer that we know so well. Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And it's here that we see Jesus setting this beautiful example for these three disciples of being submitted to the will of God. Right? Jesus setting an example of yielding his life to the Father's will, even if it meant his death. How Peter, James, and John needed special time with Jesus. I mean, how they needed that. Not only was it a time of revelation where Jesus, you know, revealed his glory to them, but it was a time also of preparation. Well, how so, Gary? How was it a time of preparation? The Lord was preparing them for what was ahead. James was the first of the apostles to die. Right? Herod Agrippa had him killed with the sword. Church tradition tells us that he was beheaded. Peter was crucified, but not like the Lord was crucified. Again, church tradition tells us that Peter requested to be crucified upside down, saying, I'm not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord. So they crucified him upside down. And without going into a lot of details, I mean, that's an even more gruesome death. John was the last of the apostles to die. John outlived all the apostles being sentenced to a long life. And the church tradition again tells us the emperor Domitian tried to kill John by boiling him in oil, but uh, John wouldn't die. 
So after being removed from that hot cauldron of oil, Domitian then exiled him to the Isle of Patmos. Not only was Jesus revealing himself to these three at this time, but he was preparing them for what was ahead, reassuring them of his victory over death. You know that glory follows suffering and the need for obedience and surrender, even if it costs you your life. How needful it is for you to spend time with the Lord. How needful it is so that he can reveal himself to you. So you can gain a deeper understanding of who Jesus truly is. Receiving revelation of his glory, right? Uh, learning from his examples. Having a deeper, more intimate relationship with him. It only happens through spending time with him. There are no shortcuts, right? There's no cutting corners to a deeper experience with Jesus Christ. There's no quick fixes for a fuller revelation of who he is. The only way to gain fresh revelation of Jesus is to spend time with him, meaningful time with him, quality time with him. How you need to spend time with Jesus so that you might be prepared by him for what is coming ahead. The Lord has just an amazing way of doing that, of preparing us for what's ahead as we spend time with him, as we wait on him, as we listen to him. Perhaps this morning, the Lord is wanting to speak to you, to speak to your heart, how he wants to prepare you for, uh, you know, our time this morning with him. It's absolutely essential for us to spend time alone with Jesus. In fact, when time alone with Jesus ceases, in reality, our Christianity ceases, right? That's when we are in danger of getting caught up with, in religion and all these outward practices. You know, like Jesus said in the last days, there's that church that would have a name that they're alive, but actually they're dead. He also said, you know, there's that church that is doing all the right things. They got good programs going on. Attendance is up. The tithe is up. You know, everything's going great except for the fact that they left their first love. They stopped spending time with Jesus. There was a lot of emotion, but no emotion, right? But I, man, may that never be said of us. May it never be said of you. May it never be said of me. You know, I pray that that wouldn't characterize Calvary Chapel Truckee. Well, verse two tells us that Jesus was transfigured before them. And now, the Greek word used here is where we get our English word metamorphosis. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 tells us, as we behold him, we are being changed into his very likeness. When we spend time alone with God, we're being transformed, transfigured, metamorphosized. A change is taking place in our heart that will seek to express itself through our lives. 
Well, this radical transformation of Jesus, of Jesus took place and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. You remember Moses when he spent time with the Lord? You remember what happened? His face began to shine. Exodus chapter 34, right? He was reflecting the glory of God. When we spend time in the presence of the Lord, beholding him, not giving him a, you know, our wish list, but sitting at his feet, waiting on him, listening to him. You know what? We're changed. And people can see it on your countenance. They can see it in your face. It's very, very evident, right? We shine with the reflected glory of God when we'll take time to do that. But what's happening here with Jesus isn't reflected glory. This is what Jesus had always been. And now it's become visible. This is Jesus' deity shining through his humanity. Can you imagine the disciples as they're watching this? I mean, their eyes must be like, you know, like bigger than saucers, like dinner plates. I mean, his face shining like the sun, his clothes become white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah are appearing to them, talking with him. Luke's gospel tells us that Moses and Elijah were talking with Jesus about his approaching death. Isn't it interesting? It's been 1,500 years, and Moses is still Moses. It's been 1,000 years, and Elijah is still Elijah. You know, it's completely crazy to me that people believe in reincarnation. The idea that if a person lives a good enough life, you know, they'll come back as a better and better person. But if they don't, they'll come back as a lower life form. You know, maybe a cow, maybe a cat, a rat, maybe a bug. You know, I've always wondered, what good thing can a bug or a rat do to make his way back up that ladder? I mean, reincarnation is such a lie. It's crazy. The Bible says it's appointed for man to die once and after that, the judgment. When a person's heart stops beating, they'll immediately stand before the Lord. And for those that who believe, who have received Jesus Christ as their savior, like Bill, like Kay, you know what? They're ushered into the presence of the, of the Lord. And what a glorious day that's gonna be. I cannot wait. But those who have not received Jesus, have not embraced him as their savior, they'll stand before him in judgment. Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, 25, he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Now that's the time frame where we have to make this decision in regards to who Jesus is, right? While we're living. The most important decision a person can make is the decision they make regarding Jesus. And that decision will determine the person's eternal destination, right? On one hand, there's eternal life, which is not only a duration of life, but also a quality of life that begins now as a believer, right? And on the other hand, there's eternal destruction where a person will uh, be separated from the Lord for all eternity, which Jesus described as an eternity of torment and suffering, right? The decision a person makes regarding Jesus is of vital importance. 
A person's eternal destiny is hanging in the balance. It's the most important decision every single person will face in this life. And I caution everyone that hears my voice, here in this room or online, you know what? Not making a decision is making a decision, right? If I bought a ticket for you first class to fly to Europe, all you need to do to go is just be at the airport tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. But you know what? You're not really sure. You might say to yourself, you know, how do I know? It, it's, it's too good to be true. You know, how do I know Gary's actually going to provide a ticket? I mean, I'll go through all that hassle, go down to the airport, pack my bags. You know, what if, what if it doesn't work? Gary doesn't actually have a ticket for me. So tomorrow comes, and what do you do? You sleep in, and you miss the flight. Not making a decision is making a decision. It's rejecting, right? It's, it's rejecting uh, the free gift. How my heart goes out to anyone here, anyone watching online that doesn't know Christ as their Savior. You know, maybe you're here because a spouse brought you this morning. Maybe you're here because a friend brought you. Maybe you just accidentally stumbled through our doors or accidentally clicked on something online and you started watching. Whatever the case, how vitally important it is that today you see your need for Jesus Christ. Whatever the case may be, it's of vital importance that today you respond to him this morning. Well, again, getting back to our, our passage, why Moses and Elijah? What's the significance of these two appearing and talking to Jesus about his approaching death? You know, it's interesting because Moses represents the law. And the law, we're told in Galatians, is a tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith, that, might, that we might be declared righteous. A person might say, well, how does that work? Well, it works like this. Have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? Have you ever, uh, you know, whether you've stolen something, hey, guess what? Values of uh, no relevance, right? Yeah, I stole something, but it was only worth a buck or something. Yeah, it makes you a thief nonetheless. Have you ever dishonored your mother or father? Guilty. Sorry, mom. <laughs> you know, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? If so, the law points to you and says you're a sinner. You've fallen short of the righteous requirements of God. You're in need of a savior. You need a savior. Left to our own devices, the law shows us that all of us are guilty and will face a holy God in judgment. Now, Elijah represents not the law like Moses does, Elijah represents um, the Old Testament prophets, right? He was one of the greatest Old Testament prophets. Where the law is a tutor to reveal to us the need for a Savior, the prophecies of the Old Testament points us to the Savior. Jesus fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of prophecies found in the Old Testament, right? So that the thinking man, the reasonable man, would be able to look at these prophecies and come to the conclusion that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Here we see Moses and Elijah appearing and talking with Jesus. And verse 4 says, Then Peter answered and said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Lord, this is cool, Peter says. It's good. You know, this is great. 
Have you ever had an experience like that? Have you ever, you know, been on a mountaintop retreat someplace? Just an amazing experience where you're there seeking the Lord and the Lord meets you in just this wonderful way, this powerful way. And your heart cries out, Lord, this is so good. This is so great. You know, I felt like, I felt like that before. You know, I think we all have. You know, it's so good for us to get away. It's good to get away to the mountaintop, you know, to get alone in order just to seek the Lord, to allow him to capture our attentions and reveal himself to us. You know, how my heart goes, you know, is wanted for us as men of the church to get away. But you know what? COVID has stopped us. We've scheduled it a couple times, but COVID has stopped us. You know, the women of the church, they've been able to get away for a day or a lunch or something like that. Last Saturday, Saturday yesterday, they had that opportunity. But for men, we haven't really had that opportunity. So again, coming up, we're going to have a special time tentatively scheduled September 11th. We're going to have a special time of fellowship, seeking the Lord as men of the church. And guys, you know what, my heart is that every one of you would schedule time, would put time aside to be there, to come together to fellowship and worship and hear from the Lord. Well, Peter feels it here saying, Lord, it's good for us to be here. But what Peter does, which is what Peter often does, he goes a little bit too far sometimes, you know, he says, if you wish, let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. You know, I felt that way before. I felt like that. Have you? You know, I used to be part of the college ministry at, at uh, Calvary uh, Chapel Corvallis, and I would organize retreats for the college kids on the mountaintop at Applegate Christian Fellowship. And I can remember one time being in the upper room, worshiping the Lord, just watching a hundred college kids be radically touched by the Lord. And I can remember just wanting to stay in that moment. You know, I didn't want to, I didn't want to go home. Lord, this is so great. You know, let's just build some tabernacles right here. Let's just stay right here. Why go home? But Luke tells us, Peter said this, not knowing what he said, right? It's amazing. You know, what can come out of your mouth when your brain isn't part of the equation, you know? You probably don't know what I'm talking about. Peter and I are probably the only ones who says stupid stuff. But that's what's happening here with Peter. I mean, he just started speaking, not knowing what he was saying because his brain was in neutral. And we read, while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed him or overshadowed them. The Shekinah glory of God that filled the tabernacle later fills the temple. The glory of God that led the children of Israel through the wilderness that cloud, while they were still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud. It could say, while Peter was still speaking, God interrupted him. And suddenly a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. Why is it that God interrupts Peter here? What's going on? I mean, do you see it? Do you know it? Peter was trying to put Moses and Elijah on that same plane, that level plane as Jesus was on. You know, and it's so crazy because that's what people want to do all the time, even today. You know, so many people think Jesus is just another, you know, man of God, much like Moses, much like Elijah, but certainly not more than that, right? 
Peter says, let's build three tabernacles here. And God the Father interrupts Peter, stopping Peter in his tracks and says, Jesus is my beloved son. Hear him. Jesus is not to be placed on the same level with any other man. He's not just another prophet. He's not just another spiritual leader. Jesus is the son of God and he's God the son. And we're to listen to him. We're to hear him. It's what walking with Jesus is all about. That's what our lifestyle is supposed to be as believers. One of hearing him, not religion, but relationship. We need to sit quietly at his feet in prayer in order to see him. That's the way we're to be living our lives. <clears throat> Before we leave this verse, I want you to think about something else. It's kind of a little bit of a side note here. But the book of Ephesians tells us that our position as believers is in Christ. Okay? So if this is the way the Father sees Jesus, his beloved Son, and you're in Christ positionally, according to the book of Ephesians, then tell me something. How does the Father see you this morning? You know what? He's well pleased with you. He's pleased with you. That's the whole message of the book of Romans, right? We're justified by our faith in Jesus Christ. You're righteous in God's sight because of your faith, not because of what you've done, but because of what he's done, right? I take the, the time to point this out because as I talk to Christians, I find that so few Christians really understand God's grace, right? There's so few Christians that understand God is pleased with them. Zephaniah says that God is rejoicing over you with singing. Isaiah says, like a bridegroom with his bride, the Lord is rejoicing over you. And let me just say, that's a lot of rejoicing. Listen carefully to me right now, please, okay? God takes pleasure in you right? God takes pleasure in you. Why? Because of all the things you're doing? No, because you're in Christ. You know, it's crazy to me how few Christians really understand this, how few Christians really enter into the joy of the Lord, how, they, how few Christians find the rest that he provides in Christ, the rest that's provided for them in him. You know, they don't understand that when they wake up, before they read their Bibles, before they spend any time in prayer, before they lead anybody to the Lord that day, how few Christians understand before any of that, God is pleased with them. He's in love with you. Listen, he's in love with you. But instead of realizing this, we struggle with condemnation. You know, the standards that we set for ourselves that we're not living up to. And the enemy loves it when we do it, right? He loves to condemn us when we fail, you know? Uh, but God, but we don't fail God. What we do is we fail to live up to our own standards. I promised I wasn't going to do that anymore. You know, I promised myself that I was going to read 10 chapters of the Bible every day. You know, I'm such a failure. And 
That's when the enemy loves to pile on when we see ourselves as a failure. God knows our frame. He knows we're going to fail. He knows we struggle with our flesh. None of that takes him by surprise. Oh my goodness, no. You know what? But the enemy loves to condemn us. Like we're the only ones who is struggling. As it says in Revelation chapter 12, the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. He loves to hurl accusations at us, right? And too often, we're dumb enough to believe it. You know, excuse me for being so pointed, but it's true. How many times did you just say, yeah, you know what, God's probably tired of me. You know, I think maybe I should just pack up my bags and go home. It's too hard to be a Christian. I can't do it right? The devil loves to condemn us. You know, again, I love what that lady said Wednesday at the life group. Man, it was such a nugget. The devil knows your name, but calls you by your sin. Jesus knows your sin and calls you by your name. How few Christians understand the love that God has for us as believers. If you're in Christ this morning, the Father is pleased with you. Will you receive that this morning? Will you grab hold of that this morning and really believe it? Do you live your life going through each week thinking that God expects more of you? Or do you go through each week just enjoying God and his presence in your life, right? That's what he wants you to do. He wants you to enjoy him. Well, it says, this is my beloved son. The voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him, verse six. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were greatly afraid. I guess so. I can just imagine, you know, I bet you Peter, he was the first one on his face. Verse seven. But Jesus came and touched them and said, arise and do not be afraid. I think this is worth considering. The voice of God knocks us down. You know what? The voice of God causes us to fall on our face. Thou shalt not, thunders from Mount Sinai. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. You know what? It breaks us. It humbles us. It causes us to fall flat on our face before God. We're in the presence of a holy God and we're but sinners. But the word of God, the son of God lifts us up. He touches us and says, do not be afraid. If Jesus has touched your life, you don't need to be afraid of God. I mean, it's instructive and it's comforting to me to understand that the most often repeated command that left the lips of Jesus was, do not be afraid. As Christians, we don't have to be afraid of God. Yes, healthy reverence, you know, uh, healthy fear, uh, stand in awe of him? Yes, yes, yes. But we don't have to be afraid of him because he loves us. He loves you. As a non-Christian, as someone who's not accepted his free gift of salvation provided in Jesus Christ, God's son, you better be afraid. You know what the Bible says? It's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. For God is angry with the wicked every day, it says. If you don't know Jesus and there's no fear in your heart, something's wrong. You're blind, your heart has grown hard and you're in a very dangerous, very scary place. But if you do know Jesus 
If he has touched your life, you don't need to be afraid. Jesus is our high priest. And as a result, we can come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and grace to help in a time of need. He's our mediator. He's reconciled us to God. He's bridged the gap between us and the Father. He's our advocate. He's, you know, your defense attorney arguing your case before God the Father. And guess what? You couldn't have a better attorney because he's never lost a case, right? Ephesians says we have access to the Father through our relationship with Jesus Christ. Hey, Dad, this is my client, Gary. Oh, okay. Bring him in, son. You know, it also says in Ephesians that we've been accepted in the beloved. Jesus would say, right? If you're afraid of him, if you're afraid of God, Jesus would say to you this morning, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. When they lifted up their eyes, it says, verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. What a great verse. They saw no one but Jesus only. Jesus said that he is the only way to the Father. You know what? You can't get to the Father through Moses or through keeping the Ten Commandments. You can't get to the Father through good works. You, you can't get to the Father by even believing Old Testament prophecies. Hey, I believe we're living in the last days. I believe that Antichrist is coming. Well, good for you. It's all true. But you know what? It's only Jesus that can save you. Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says, For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. It's Jesus only. How that needs to speak to us as a church. Jesus is the foundation of this church, not Brian. Not me. You know what? Jesus is the foundation of the church. That's what this place is all about. Jesus only, exalted, glorified, magnified. That's what worship is all about. I'm not so concerned if worship doesn't bless you. It doesn't bother me in the least because worship isn't directed towards you, right? Our worship is directed to the Lord, seeking to bless him. And as we study the word, we do so that we would see Jesus and learn of him and fall deeper in love with him. That's what it's all about. Now quickly, verse 9. Now as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them saying, tell the vision to no one until, G until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. The disciples have just seen Jesus' deity bursting through his humanity. And Jesus tells them, hey, don't tell anyone. Boy, I bet you that was a challenge. You know what? I mean, they've just witnessed his unspeakable, unfathomable, eternal glory. Right? To them, as they're walking down, Jesus physically, outwardly, looks exactly the same. But I bet you in their eyes, I imagine he would never be the same to them. Totally different ballgame now. Verse 10, and his disciples asked him, saying, why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Jesus answered and said to them, indeed, Elijah is coming first and will restore all things. But I say to you that Elijah has come already and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the son of man is also about to suffer at their hands. The disciples understood that he was, uh, spoke to them of John the Baptist. 
I mean, the disciples are coming down. They're confused because they just saw Jesus' glory. And yet Jesus tells them they're going to, to Jerusalem and he's going to die there. So they question him about the prophecy regarding Elijah found in Malachi. And Jesus answers them saying, Elijah is coming. Right? Future tense. John the Baptist was not the fulfillment of the prophecy that Elijah would come before the great and uh, dreadful day of the Lord, Malachi 4, 5. But John the Baptist came in the spirit and power of Elijah, fulfilling the prophecy of the angel Gabriel, who told Zacharias that his son, John the Baptist, would go before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You know, I know I've gone a little bit long. Just tune in here for a minute if you've turned out. We're going to finish up right now. But as followers of Jesus Christ, we need a few things. We need a few things. We need to prioritize prayer in our lives, to seek the Father's heart. Each of us need to spend time with Jesus in order to learn from him, to receive revelation of him, to be developed by him, to be prepared by him for what's ahead. And we need to submit to the will of God for our lives, being submitted even unto death if necessary. We need to understand that the cross comes before the crown. We need to understand, you know what? We're headed for glory. Our future is in heaven. And that should be just stamped on our on the back of our eyelids, every time we, we close our eyes, we just see heaven, right? We need to embrace the truth regarding the way the Father sees us in Christ, right? You don't need to be afraid unless you're not a believer today, right? In that case, you need to be afraid. Or better yet, make a decision to embrace him as your Savior. And we need to hear the Lord. We need to be continually hearing from him. All of these needs are only satisfied through getting alone with God, right? Spending time sitting at the Savior's feet, choosing that better thing like Mary, waiting on him, listening to him, and drinking it in. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I, I recognize my need. Lord, I recognize that this study is for me. I share it with my brothers and sisters, but Lord, this is something you want from me. This is want, something you want for us. Lord, and I pray that we would answer this call to prioritize our life in such a way that is honoring to you. Lord, I pray that your word this morning, as it has gone out, and as I trust your spirit has spoken to our hearts, I pray that it would not return void in any of our hearts. Lord, that you give us the courage and the power and the ability to act upon the things that you spoke to us this morning. In your name we pray. Amen.